Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Hey, when you think of growing pains, what do you think of? Pardon? What's that? You never had that? Oh, funny, Bill. The TV show. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Anyone else? What do you think of when you think of growing pains? Do you remember having growing pains? Muscle aches. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Screaming five-year-olds in the middle of the night. Ooh. Is that recent? Is that still kind of sharp? Yeah, right. Anyone else? Let me tell you what I think of. Seared into my mind, or shall I say my knees, is the memory of the Datsun 210. Green, just like that one. Now, I admit, when I was looking for pictures of the Datsun 210, I thought, I'd like to drive one of those now. Anyone? It would be kind of, kind of cool, right? Kind of vintage. Maybe a flame down the side. But anyway... The neighbor had this. We, we lived a half an hour out of town, and we would, uh, at times, drive home. Now, I did the math. So the mom was driving with her daughter, and then there were me and my brother and my sister. And we were like, you know, teenagers at this point. Well, I was growing. And I remember, it was right there in that, in, right, right, can I get close to the screen? It was right there, right on the other side of that glass. I was always on the left-hand side, for some reason, beside the driver, and the growing pains were right down there. Because at about mile 22, I could not straighten my legs, of course, and it was kind of hot. And, um, oh, my legs would just ache as I was stuck in a Datsun 210 and couldn't get out. And it got hotter and I started feeling sweaty and like I was going to throw up for about a year. At least that's what it felt like. So whenever I think of growing pains, this is what I think of, people, the Datsun 210. I don't know what kind of memories you have of growing pains, but I still feel them in my knees right there. This morning we're talking about growing pains, but maybe growing pains of a different kind. The reality is God's the one who brings the growth, but growth often brings pain, doesn't it? Some kind of pain. God gives increase, and yet increase can cause discomfort. And even in a community, new ways of having to negotiate and be as a community. Well, what we're going to discover today in the Acts story, which we're going through, is so relevant and helpful to us. I really believe that as a church, but also to be applied to our own individual lives. Because how we respond to the pain of growth often will determine the future of growth. Like, how we actually engage or respond to what's happening because of growth. And you can think of that in probably a lot of different places. You can certainly think of that in a growing business. There's pain that comes up, and and unless people respond to that pain in a certain way. You know, George and I had a conversation on the phone today about growth in the gleaners, right? Earlier this week, and and, and the, the fact there's the ongoing negotiation to figure out, like, what do you do with that? How do you How do you change? How do you respond? I know those of you who keep having kids, uh, you know, you got to figure out what do we do now, right? Oh, my goodness, there's another one coming. Right, Kevin? 
And so then you have to figure out growth. You've got to respond to that. But that's also true personally, right? When we're experiencing personal growth, sometimes there's pain that comes from that personal growth. And how you respond to that pain can really determine if that growth continues. Maybe not, you know, when I was stuck in the back of a Datsun 210, my knees were growing no matter what. But, but a, lot of, a lot of the kinds of growth or how we respond to that growth, how we respond to the pain, it really will affect how that growth rolls out or the kind of effect it has on the lives of people around us. And what we find out is that leadership plays a central role in that, particularly as we think about our life as a church, we think about our life as a community, but you can also apply this to business and school. And so a lot of what we're looking at and exploring today can really be applied across the board, but I'm going to apply it directly to church and, and use some illustrations from that. The stakes are high, actually, when we consider how we respond to pain, the pain of growth. I want to suggest that they're perhaps even higher when we consider our responsibility as a church, our call as a church to help people discover who Jesus is. Our mission as a church is to help people find and follow Jesus. And some of us um, are part of this community and we're still exploring what that means. And you need to know that like, our goal, our hope, our desire is to help you take that next step in finding and following Jesus. And, and for those of us who, who are following Jesus, to find out what does that mean for my life? How do, I, how do I step into that? How do I actually fall after Jesus and follow him in all that he is calling me to be and who he's, you know, the things he's calling me to do? And so we're committed to that. And the stakes are really high when, as a church, then, there's pain, for example, because of growth, different kinds of growth, and then we avoid it. We pull away from it. Or we react to it in certain ways. The stakes are really high because people's lives are really impacted by our, our response. Well, today we get a front row ticket into the first kind of growth crisis of the early church. We're going through this history. Uh, the book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. And it's it's our front row seat to the early church. But now, here at the start of Acts chapter 6, we get to watch the first time that uh, this church has had to deal with pain and a crisis that comes from growth. And watching them, how, how they responded to it, uh, was hugely helpful for me. And I want to share that with you, because how they responded ultimately changed the course of history. We're here today because of how they responded then. And so we can learn from them, but also be thankful for them. Let's pray together as we start. Jesus, I thank you for your commitment to your people, to us, to the church, because you know that in order for men and women and children to discover who you are and what you've done for them, you've chosen, we're thankful for this, but we're also a little daunted by it, you've chosen to use us in that, to to actually help others find you through us. And I pray today we'd be open to learning um, another way that you are fulfilling that promise in us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the early church in Acts now is somewhere around, well, you know, it's a rough number, between five and 10,000 people, okay? It's been growing rapidly, and they're making waves. They're continuing to gather to pray and worship all the time, 
Uh, they're hungry to receive more teaching, particularly from the apostles, about Jesus. And this would be the apostles reaching back and kind of reteaching the whole Old Testament, their scriptures, in light of who Jesus was, in the light of the fact that he has died and rose again and ascended on high and the Holy Spirit has come, in light of all his teaching, they're reworking everything and they're reteaching it to this community so they understand about Jesus. They're hungry to receive more of that. And they're constantly bearing witness to Jesus in his resurrection when they're out there in the community. And the Holy Spirit is fulfilling that promise that Jesus made, the promise we've been, you know, we've been anchoring ourselves to back in chapter one. Jesus said, look, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you. And when the Holy Spirit does, it's going to fill you with power. And you're going to be my witnesses right here to the ends of the earth. And the Holy Spirit is fulfilling that promise that Jesus gave. And God's working in them in powerful ways. Through the apostles, people are being healed from long-standing diseases. And it's wild stuff's happening. But also, through the generosity of the community, people are being relieved and freed from debilitating poverty. And more and more people are discovering the good news about Jesus and are coming to follow him. There's growth. It's exciting and it's explosive and it's invigorating. And yes, they're getting some pushback. We've already seen some of that. They've already felt the sting of the religious authorities. Two of them have really felt the sting, like on their own backs. And and yet there's no shutting up these spirit-filled followers of Jesus. Everywhere they go, they're telling people about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And everywhere you look, every time you look into the community, you're seeing them live that out in really tangible, really concrete ways. Their generosity is changing people's lives. What we've seen in this story so far, we're only at the start of Acts 6, we've seen the witness of this early church, the promise Jesus gave, we've seen it threatened in two ways. First, through overt persecution, like, don't stop, stop talking, we're gonna beat you, whip you, kill you, whatever, didn't work. Or, also, we saw it through, like, covert corruption, where there was this, this couple that tried to, to angle their generosity to somehow give them a better place and, God took care of that business too. So he, he thwarted those two. But now a third, third threat, as it were, emerges. And how is the Holy Spirit going to lead them to overcome this threat to their witness? That's our story today, picking up in Acts chapter 6. It goes like this. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. That's just the opening line. Let me comment a little bit. So God brings growth, but growth brings pain. We're going to see this today. And what's the pain here? In the midst of an incredibly generous community, a community that is, we've already been told God's grace is so powerfully at work among them that there's no needy persons. What we discover is part of the reason why is they, they were systematically serving the most vulnerable among them, particularly the widows. But even in the midst of this generous community, there's a certain group that's being overlooked. They're not receiving the care that they need. And Luke tells us who they are. First of all, they're all widows. These would be women who didn't have any, this was a, uh, in, in this culture, the only safety net was family. And, and particularly uh, a male family member. So either um, a husband or a, a, an uncle or a brother, someone like that. So these widows would be people that didn't have that anymore. Their husbands were dead. Um, they didn't have relatives that were taking care of them. And they were in trouble without care. 
Okay, And so what we find is this church has stepped in as this new family of God. They've stepped in to take responsibility for the care of their widows. And they're doing that. That's why we heard earlier there's no needy among them. The most vulnerable people in their community are being cared for. But as we discover among this growing church, there's actually two kinds of widows. There's what uh, Luke says, uh, Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews, you could say locals and foreigners is basically what it is. These uh, Hebraic Jews, these would be Jews who spoke Aramaic and were like locals. They're, they're, they're the ones everybody knows. You know, like, I know her. I grew up with her. I grew up with her brother. I know her. Oh, yes, yes, we went to her wedding 45 years ago, whatever. It's that kind of person, a, a person that, you know, we've had dealings with their family in the past. We speak the less saying language. We get each other. I was by there for tea last week. That kind of a person. And then there's the Hellenized Jews who, quite honestly, uh, we don't know them very well. They talk with funny accents. In fact, they don't even speak Aramaic very well. They uh, don't seem to have a lot of connection. I don't even remember where they came from. They just kind of appeared last week. They were in the line to get baptized, follow Jesus. We don't know. Who are they? We aren't really sure. They don't seem that easy to connect with, frankly, because they seem, well, different than us. See how this is happening? There's two different kind of cultures. They've come in together. One of them seems easy to care for because uh, all these guys who were part of the original group, they're all part of the same culture. They all speak the same language. They're all, they're, you know, they know each other. But there's this growing group of people that have come from, they think, well, not think, they know, the Jewish diaspora, they call it. So these, are, these would be a people that maybe their whole life, maybe for generations, they had raised their families in, in places like Rome or Babylon or Egypt. And for whatever reason, they've come back to Jerusalem. And maybe they've come back destitute. We, we don't know the story, but there they are. And they're, they're not really at home there, but they're part of this Jesus movement but they aren't like the rest of us. And for some reason, it's been easy to overlook them. The church has experienced explosive growth, but the reality is this growth now has moved them beyond sort of naturally organic, naturally connected family ties where everybody knows how everybody's doing. And if someone has a need, it's easy to meet because we know them. And the disciples have been managing this so far. We've seen it already, right? Uh, people are bringing money and putting it at the disciples' feet, and they're distributing it to those who have need. So it's happening just pretty naturally, pretty organically. But what's, what we discover is as they've been growing, these systems of care are now starting to fail. And it's made it easy when you assume that things are working and people are getting the care they need. It's been easy for them to then overlook that there's a group among us who actually aren't having their needs met because, frankly, we didn't even notice them. We didn't even see them. Can you all get how that would be easy to do? Well, at this point in the Acts story, the overlooking that is happening isn't inherently, you know, it's not racist per se. It's it's not inherently ugly or biased. It's just natural because they're all people of the same blood, but as a result of the difference in culture and language, it was easy for certain people to just not be visible to the leadership. So it wasn't an intentional oversight, but it was just as devastating. Um, the needs was there, and yet it, they were being overlooked. You think about that. These are hungry people, vulnerable people, who, who are, have maybe been promised or committed, or, or there, there's been a, a system you thought set up for care, and then as a, but as a result, you were still hungry last week. You can see the, the problem that's emerging. 
This happens actually whenever uh, any community grows, but whenever a church in particular becomes larger, then all the ways of doing things need to be rethought, right? Whenever a church grows, we are pushed, those of us who maybe have been part of the church longer, part of the culture longer, we're pushed to think about how do we intentionally include people who weren't just part of things all along? Like, how do I intentionally communicate to people who aren't just easy and within my in my sphere of friendships and how do i think through uh, uh, the people who are now part of a community who aren't from a church background and don't kind of pick up on some of the cues that we all used to assume everybody could pick up you know what i'm saying and when growth happens then it's challenging it's particularly challenging when there's one dominant group maybe everyone's from a church background or maybe everyone's from one ethnicity it can be a real a real challenge how do we care for people how do we not assume that people know or that people are included or people are are heard that's a real leadership challenge well these growing pains are really natural and how we respond to them as we help people find and follow jesus requires an increase in leadership an increase in organization um which uh, might make those who were part of things feel like they lost something. I can imagine in this early community, remember, there was 120 people at the very start. 120 people. Easy fit in one room, right? 120 people. I can imagine them thinking, oh, the cozy old days. You know, when we could all fit in the same room, the same upper room, and we just had these beautiful potlucks together, and everyone just kind of knew everybody's name. Now, I don't know anybody's name. Right? I know this is not never relevant to us. But you can imagine these people saying, Oh, I wish we could go back to the way things were when we knew everybody's kids. I wish we could go back to the way things were when everybody spoke the same language. I wish we could go back to the way things were when we all just sort of, the word just spread so organically and people just dropped in. And, and yeah, yeah, I can imagine people saying that. But the reality is God had brought growth to them. And if they continued to depend on those kind of organic, natural connections, guess what was happening? People are being overlooked. People are being excluded, not intentionally, but it's happening. And so there had to be a change. In fact, if there hadn't been a change, if there hadn't been a willingness to engage us, it would have stunted their growth. It would have hurt people. The gospel of Jesus Christ would not have been shared with as many people as a result. So, what we discover is a complaint is lodged with the leadership. And this complaint reveals a threat to the mission of the church and how the leadership responds is critical. Let's see how they did it. This complaint comes up uh, when the outsider widows are being overlooked, and here's the rest of the story in um, Acts 6. So the twelve gathered together all the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, gee, there's a nice one, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Do you hear what they did there? 
I want us to tease a few things out of this story. There's so much to learn. It could be like a leadership workshop. And I, I wanted to say, if you're like unfamiliar with church, in fact, you might be here today and you're thinking, I'm not even sure about the Jesus guy and somebody drugged me here and said the coffee was good and all that. I wanted to say, I'm going to talk specifically about church leadership a lot today. But I promise you, you can take these principles and apply them to your business, to your school, to your workplace. They work. They're good leadership. But I want to specifically focus on the kind of godly leadership that we talk about that we need as a church. It's going to help us understand how we lead in a crisis, how we respond in a crisis. I'm probably going to be a bit more reflective today or personal today than I normally am. I'm going to talk a lot about maybe myself, my own challenges in our church. I hope that serves you. Yeah, I really do. And uh, maybe it'll foster some more conversation. So here we go. Well, I want to share seven ways that godly leadership overcomes missional threat that, that, are, that really come out of this story. And uh, some of them I'll spend more time on, some less, but I think they'll all be helpful. The first thing we see is that godly leadership listens during a crisis. It's the first thing that's implied in this story, that these 12 guys listened. They didn't just get defensive and say, hey, we're doing the best we can, you know, lay off. They didn't just say, well, you know, what are you talking about? Help is just as available to them as it is to anyone else. You know, we're doing our best here. Can you imagine those kind of responses? I can. I can feel them within myself. When I, when someone, yeah, you know what I'm saying. But these guys took it to heart. They were all ears. I can tell you that listening during a crisis can be very, very difficult to do. Do you realize that? When things, when the wheels are coming off, when things are difficult, it is sometimes very hard to listen with an open heart, with an open mind. In my work as a leader, I've learned that you cannot lead well without listening well. And that's true in your family, and that's true in your business, and that's true with your friendships, but it's really true here at the church. In our history of the Erickson Covenant Church, we have not always been good at this, but I can say we've always worked at it. We've always tried. When I arrived at this church eight years ago, the church had just weathered a significant crisis and was working hard at listening well to people who were not feeling heard, particularly not feeling heard by the leadership. And it took very intentional, very hard work of listening on the part of the leadership team to overcome that crisis. And who we are today as a church owes a huge debt to those leaders who at the time were working very hard to listen. And I see some of them uh, here today. Listening is critical as leaders. And I can tell you that as a leadership team today and as pastors today, we want to be leadership who listens. That's our desire. We work hard at that. I'm not saying we always do that really well. But I know that that's That's our posture. We want to be leadership that listens. Now, it doesn't mean that every complaint that gets lodged is of equal value. Can we all just say that? Can we all acknowledge that? Not every complaint has equal weight or equal value. It doesn't mean, though, it shouldn't be heard. It just means the response might be different. Over the years that I've worked for churches, I have heard my share of complaints that aren't actually about the mission progressing. You know what I'm saying? It's really about the fact that I'm feeling uncomfortable because of the growing pains. I've heard my share of complaints. And what, I, what, I, what I know is true, though, is this. If a leader is listening well, even a conversation like that can become an opportunity for further growth for that person. 
as well as further growth for me personally. Listening during crisis is crucial to growth. Whether that be personal growth, whether that be church growing, whether that be a witness expanding, whether that be in our business, whatever, we need to listen, however it's lodged. Now, uh, I, I blog about this quite a bit. I don't know why. It's probably a pet thing of mine. It really doesn't matter how you lodge your complaint. I think I've gone off on that several times in my blog. But like, how, in fact, I have one waiting in the queue. You might see it this week. There's reasons why sometimes your criticism or insight isn't received very well. And we can learn how to do that really well. That's a whole other conversation. But as leaders, we need to be open to listening. Sometimes when the complaint comes, the criticism comes, it's difficult to receive. We need to be the kind of people that hold that, open that, hold it openly, and then respond appropriately. Well, how do we respond? Second, we see this in these 12. Godly leadership clearly responds, not anxiously reacts. This is a big one for me. Whenever there's a problem in the church, I am very anxious to fix it. Sometimes too anxious. I find it so easy to react instead of respond. Because I am the kind of person, I think you know this, I am the kind of person that just wants everybody to get along and I want everything to be okay. Please, you know, I hate it when people are fighting. I hate it when there's struggle going on. I hate it when there's the pain of growth. I do. And so those kind of things make me feel very anxious and I, I want to immediately try to make it all better. Right? And I've done damage to some of you because of it. I know that. And so learning how to clearly respond, learning how to take a breath, learning how to just pause. Lord Jesus, help me pause, you know? and wait so that there can be a clear response as opposed to just anxiously reacting. My biggest mistakes as a pastor, both here and, Lord help them other churches I've worked at, is times when I've responded anxiously instead of taking the time to pray, to think through, not letting anxiety drive my actions. Well, how these leaders respond really challenges me because here's the deal. Don't miss this. The complaint is because they failed as leaders in some way. Like, it can be, just as the money's been laid squarely at their feet, so is the complaint. Because they're the ones who've been responsible for this. And so, it would have been very easy for them to just, ah, feel anxious, and then, well, I'm going to solve the problem, I'm going to fix it, because I want everybody in this new community to think, I am great, right? But they didn't do that. They didn't make the problem theirs to solve. They didn't anxiously react. Instead, they led their community through this growth crisis by, by providing a clear response, a, a clear way forward. What did they do? That's the third thing. Godly leadership gathers people to name the problem. That's what they did here. They pull everyone together and they say, this is what's going on. Here, we've got a problem, people. They confessed their own failure. They could have blamed someone. They could have shifted it. They could have ducked their responsibility. They could have down. They could have done one of those deals. You know how sometimes leaders do. Well, people, there's some complaining going on. We need to respond to it. You know, they could have done that. They didn't do that. They call everyone together and they name the problem. They were humble leaders who realized this thing has outgrown our capacity. We can't do this. They fully acknowledge their failure and the need for change. And this is not easy to do as a leader. 
I can tell you that. It is not easy to confess, I am inadequate. I am not able to do this. I don't have the skills. But it's so necessary. And what I notice here is there's no spin. They're not trying to save face. They just pull everyone together and name the problem. A few years ago, we were experiencing a growth crisis at our church, right here, Erickson Covenant Church. We were busting at the seams. We didn't know what to do. And that growth created problems. Problems which we tried to address, tried to figure out, we wrestled with. And after it all is said and done, I realized that I'm not going to take responsibility for all of it, but I'm going to at least take responsibility for this. That one of the ways I failed you as a church was that though I may have had a sense of what was going on, I had a very difficult time naming the problem and I certainly had a difficult time addressing it publicly. I tend to dodge those kinds of things, and I did. Now, I didn't intentionally try to dodge them. I just didn't want to make you feel bad or make someone feel bad. That's me. That's one of my sin problems. And so, as a result of my, I'd say, partially unwillingness, but partially just stupidity, I wasn't able to name the problem publicly, and I know that we suffered as a result. We did. My failure to understand the problem hurt us. My failure to name the problem, to deal with it head on, to not respond anxiously, all of that, it hindered our mission. It hindered our mission as a church to help people find and follow Jesus in this community. It hurt us. Now, I think we've almost recovered, but it hurt us. For several years, it hurt us. And I trace part of that to my inability to name the problem and to really deal with it. These leaders name the problem. And it takes real wisdom and real humility to do that. It's what these leaders demonstrate. It's very difficult to do. It's very difficult when it's something that's been overlooked. It's difficult when it's something that the dominant majority doesn't even recognize. But these guys do it. How? Well, fourth, godly leadership stays at their post. They said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God. Later on, they reaffirm prayer and the ministry of the word. And this isn't them being all hoity-toity and we're better and I don't want to serve food. No, no. They've been serving food. But they come to a realization that, whoa, in order for us to properly tend to what's going on here, we'd have to completely neglect the one thing that we, are, we have to do for this community, which is teaching this whole new way of seeing Scripture through Jesus and prayer. Critical things. And whatever the crisis was, the Holy Spirit helps these leaders take and face real facts and they, they begin to realize that by abandoning their post, by trying to solve this problem themselves, they wouldn't be solving the problem. They would, in fact, be making it worse. That however they might have been tempted to step in and be the heroes, or maybe that's just me, but, they, you know, I think they might have felt that too. They began to realize that they can't abandon their central responsibility in the life of the church. That in order for the church to keep growing, they need godly leaders who won't abandon their post. The church needed these apostles to keep teaching them about Jesus, to keep praying for them and with them as a church, to keep helping them serve as witnesses in their community, in their family, in their city. And so at this moment of crisis, they reaffirm their responsibility to God's word and to prayer. And they realize that growth just can't continue if people aren't actually hearing about God's word. If Jesus' followers aren't learning to follow Jesus, if the new family of God isn't being taught how to be kingdom citizens, none of this is going to happen. 
This rep- I think this represents a tremendous challenge, a tremendous temptation, really, for pastors, for me personally. When uh, things are growing, or where complaints are rising, when needs are, are growing, I am very tempted to try to be every single thing this church needs. I feel that temptation every single day. I do. I need to be an awesome fundraiser, a thoughtful theologian, a great marriage counselor, your best friend. I need to be interceding in prayer. I I, I need to be a janitor at times, youth pastor at other times. I need to be a real critical thinker, but also good on the soundboard. And I need to be able to discipleship, mentor others, lead worship when I have to, as well as be a model dad, husband, and I like to farm. Plus, I just need to be an all-around awesome guy who doesn't ever seem very stressed. (gasps) But here's the thing that really hit home for me in this story. Trying to be everything that the church needs not only is a failure of leadership, it not only distracts me from the core thing that I need to be about, but here's the thing, it actually disempowers everyone else from being who God has called them to be, from being who you are have been called to be, serving in the roles that God has gifted you and called you into it. Actually, when leaders are stupid like that, they actually prevent the church from being who the church is called to be. And so, godly leaders need to stay at their posts. I could use examples, but I won't, uh, because the sermon's getting long. Here we go. All right. Fifth, godly leadership defines the spiritual parameters of new ministers, of of new leaders. Now, in this community, the Twelve gave some direction. They didn't abdicate everything. They gave some direction about the kind of people who needed to be empowered into greater leadership. They said, seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. These ended up being people who were from uh, the same kind of background as these widows who were being neglected, Greek speakers, uh, Jews, one of them was a proselyte, but They're all kind of from that community. And I love this. They're filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. So it's not just that they're incredible spiritual depth, but they're as dumb as posts when it comes to administration. Nor was it like, there's like super awesome business people and awesome administration, but they don't really know a thing about Jesus. But hey, you know what? They'll, They'll really help us. You know, It's not one or the other. It's both and. And they're called, they're told, look, You need to look for people that have the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. These are the kind of people that need to be empowered. Godly leadership doesn't just say to the community, oh, go ahead and appoint anyone you like. Because the life of the church is too precious. And the witness of the church is too important. The people who are empowered to lead the church in a variety of ways, and we're going to see those some of those guys who are empowered here go on to do some crazy stuff in the kingdom. Stephen and Philip in particular. But here... What we see is, this needs to be, um, you know, there needs to be some parameters that, so these people are trustworthy and Jesus-following and Spirit-filled. And as the New Testament develops, of the Apostle Paul in particular, he begins to describe that a little more for the churches that he planted, saying, look, there's some criteria you've got to look for in leaders. Because we've got, to be, we've got to be careful with who's empowered into leadership, because the life of the church is really affected by the leadership. And so, more directions given as the story develops. But this blend of spirit and wisdom is so critical. You need to know that as a leadership team, uh, I'm part of that leadership team, it is our desire that as a leadership team, we're elected by you, and uh, you may not be fully aware how this works, but you know we have a leadership team, and the members of the leadership team serve in two-year stints, maximum of four before taking a break. But they're called into leadership, and we 
as a church, we want to be empowering people who are full of spirit and have wisdom. And as a leadership team, we take that seriously of growing in spiritual depth and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, but also in wisdom to know how to lead this community properly. And even over the next month or two, there's a nominating committee that was just empowered on Sunday or on Monday at the congregational meeting. And we'll be looking for some new people to join the leadership team. There's some going off, some coming on. But we're looking for people who are filled with the Spirit and wisdom. Not perfect, but, but moving the right direction and able to come and provide and, and grow within the context of this leadership team for the sake of the church. So, they provide parameters. But that doesn't mean they're hovering. It doesn't mean they're hand-holding. Number six, godly leadership empowers others to solve the problem. I love this. They recognize the problem was, quite frankly, of their own doing. Church had grown beyond their capacity. So when they set out the parameters, they still say, look, here's the kind of people you're looking for, but you know them. Go pick them. This is what, this is what you need. You do it. They empower this community to actually look around and say, well, who, who could be good at this job? Who could serve us in this way? Who is showing incredible spiritual growth and leadership and, and yet real wisdom and they could step into this role? And however they processed that, they forwarded these seven names. These leaders empowered others to solve the problem. It's a humble leader that, that can do that. And, and, and they kind of restrict their own parameters. Say, this is what we're called to do, but here's your responsibility. Go and do it. Go and do it. And they're empowering others into ministry, which takes us to our seventh point. Because after they forward these names, godly leadership affirms growing ministry leadership. They affirm the community's choices. They don't quibble. They don't question. They gather around these new leaders and they pass the torch. They affirm them publicly. They bless them in their ministry leadership because they know that more leaders in the mission means more growth in the mission. In fact, the more leaders who are affirmed and empowered into ministry, the more witness will grow. They know this is true. This is a challenge for us all, isn't it? not just a challenge for leaders, it's a challenge for all of us as we recognize the need for us to be empowered into ministry, to serve in leadership, to serve in ministry capacities in our own church life. And uh, part of the challenge is as pastors, especially if you've got a pastor like me who likes to do things uh, too much, uh, the problem is sometimes I can forget that, oh right, my job's not to do everything. My job is to help you figure out what's right for you and where's God called you to serve and, and, and to, to provide encouragement and development and equipping and all that. But whenever you're tempted to look at me and go, but we hired Tom to do that. <laughs> whenever I'm tempted to say, well, you're paying me, I should do this. The both of us got to sort of stop and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's your job? It's actually not 18,000 things. It's three, you know. And, and what's my job? It's somehow... Among us all, as the Holy Spirit has gifted us and as He calls us, as well as as we recognize need and step into that, as a church we're called to be in ministry together. And as a growing leadership group, serving and leading in a variety of ways, we as the church can be that witnessing community, that caring community that God has called us to be. Well, there, there they are. Seven ways that this, this early community overcame a significant missional threat. And the net effect of this is super important to see. The net effect of what they did here was the continuing spread of God's word and the increasing growth of the church. Right at the very end, verse 7, it says this. 
So, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the effect. And it's this growth that, that Luke, the author of Acts, wants us to see that. Because this is what was at stake in this story. He actually bookends this whole crisis with an emphasis on increase. Because you know that God wants to grow the church. He actually wants more people discovering who Jesus is. And so Luke tells us at the very start that the number of disciples was increasing. Then he describes this crisis and the response. And then at the end, how the word of God continues to spread. The number of disciples continuing to increase. So make no mistake about it. Luke wants us to see this, that the lives of real people, men and women and children, were at stake here whether they would actually discover that there's a Jesus who loves them, whether they would actually discover forgiveness and purpose, whether they would actually be included in the family of God, that actually hung in the balance, depending on how they responded to this crisis. Luke wants us to see that. They weathered the crisis as both they were led by God's leaders, but they also responded as a spirit-filled community. And as a result, more people come and discover who Jesus is. Friends, that challenged me this week. And I hope, <laughs> I also had a hard week, so it was one of those weeks too, right? And, and so as I share with, this, with you today, my hope is this. My hope is that all of us together will get a greater sense of, of who God has called us to be. And yeah, I may have shared more today with you than I normally do about my responsibility as a pastor. The text kind of suggested that. But I want us together to get a clear vision of what it means for us to be God's people here in this valley, but to be God's people as a community. So the thing is, is the more that we're empowering leaders, the more that we're serving in the areas God has gifted us in, the better that I am as a pastor, the healthier I am, the more focused I am, the better we will be as a church. So that as God brings growth and we push our way through that pain, we see God continue to bring more growth, which means more people discovering who Jesus is, more people finding and following him. Because friends, that's what it's all about, isn't it? That's what it's all about. We're going to go to our time of communion now. Um, let me just pray as a, as a kind of a bridge uh, from, from what we've been hearing now to moving to the table. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would just seal in our hearts and minds now what you want us to take from today. When it comes right down to it, Jesus, you want to see people enfolded into your family, who, who discover that they're loved, that they're forgiven, that you want to live in them. And all that we've talked about today is all about that, about us being your people and responding to what you are doing among us. And I pray that you would grow us as a church in our response to you. I do pray that you would grow us in our effect, in our witness, that we would see more men and women and children coming to know who you are Lord Jesus, we long for that. And in those places where we resist that, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would move in us. You would develop in us your heart for others. Help us to examine those places where we feel pain and to engage them thoughtfully and humbly with a willingness to change ourselves. I pray for a blessing upon our leadership team and the leadership ministry leadership throughout our congregation upon us as pastors, and uh, that we would just be focused on what you've called us to do, who you've called us to be, for the sake of the church, 
and our witness. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey. Whether you're finding Jesus for the first time, or you have been following him for years. If you have been listening for a while, perhaps you're wondering how you can support the church financially. To find out, please go to ericksoncovenant.ca and click on the Donate tab. Thank you for being part of this journey with us. Every day we are seeking to help people to find and follow Jesus.